so we're really excited about this, this uh, series that we've been in on reconciliation. Kiara and I are doing today together. Jake Furman and I will be preaching together next week. But I'm going to let Kiara open us up. Go ahead. I'm going to pray. That's a good way to open things, right? Um, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we love to adore you. You're the best thing ever to behold. I pray that we behold you deeper and deeper all the days of our lives. God, we're learning to behold each other, but we really have no idea how to do this. Um, you know the ways sin has seized our bodies and our souls and has made it difficult for us to be unified in the ways that you want us to be. And so we need your leadership. We need your voice. We need your spirit. We need your de-escalation skills. We need all that, God, um, today. Um, as we preach, teach, whatever we're doing, Lord, I pray that the people, including me and Joel, would hear you the most. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, um, so a couple of prerequisite announcements so you guys can know how to think about the things that are happening. Joel already said we've been talking about reconciliation for the last um, two weeks and we'll continue for two more weeks. Today we thought it would be best to do a dialogue together and to talk through some of these specific concepts. So what you guys need to know, we already said it in a video once, but what you guys need to know is that throughout this time as we're teaching and talking, there is a number that you can text your questions to. Last week, Joel used the word proliferation and I was like, what is that? What does that, how do you even spell proliferation? I was like, oh. So then he defined it afterwards and I was really grateful. Otherwise, I would have turned to my neighbor and been like, do you know this word? I do not. Um, so besides grammar and vocabulary, some of this stuff brings up internal questions as we talk about reconciliation. Um, questions that you've wondered in your experience, questions that you've wondered um, in your lives and as we talk about what the Bible says. And so we'll have the number up on the screen soon. As we're doing this, we encourage you to text your questions to the number and we're gonna answer some of them. I'd also like to acknowledge we do not know everything. We only know some things. And those things we don't know if we know very well. But the things that we do know or we feel like the Lord is leading us to say, we'll say those things. Um, I think I'm hoping more than anything else, that all of this will lead to greater curiosity, and it'll build deeper hunger. And you can ask the one who was there at that time, and he can probably tell you way more than we can. So we're going to do what we can. We're going to hope he does all the other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So um, that's first. Second, let's read this passage together. Is everybody confused right now, or is everybody with us? Okay, good. That's, that's a good amount of nodding. Thank you. All right, let's read this together. Um, it's going to be, we're going to come out of Ephesians 2. It's a good one, right, Diane? Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. If you have a Bible or a cellular device, you can look there, or you can see the screen if you can see it. Um, I'm going to stand to honor the word. If you guys want to stand to honor Jesus's word, you can. Uh, if you just want to stand in your heart, too, the Lord will see that. There's no pressure. All right. It says, therefore, 
Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, Gentiles by birth are, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without citizenship or without God in the world. But now Jesus Christ, who once were far, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For, though, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You can be seated if you want to. Um, so to give a little context for what's going on, Paul, this is, this is Paul talking. Paul has fathered several churches throughout Asia Minor and I suppose Asia Major and various places in Asia. I'm not sure. Um, this is one of them. Um, this is the church in Ephesus that he has been fathering for a while. And this is a predominantly Gentile church, which means it's mostly Roman and Greek people. I was Googling it today and I found out these are people who actually wore togas. I don't know if you knew that, but back then they actually, so, you know, I don't remember very many Jewish pictures of people in togas. I haven't seen that in my experience, so these aren't Jewish people. These aren't people who are familiar with Jewish customs or anything like that. These are Gentiles, and they've come to follow the Lord very recently because Christianity isn't that old. And so we need to begin looking at this by acknowledging that Paul is talking to a group of people who have been um, engrafted into the faith, who have been adopted into a relationship with Jesus and into the family with Jewish believers. He's talking to them in this way and telling them that they need to remember that they were once outsiders. Because by ethnicity, being Gentile, by religion, being Gentile made them ethnically and I think as a culture, outsiders. The Jewish people held the law, they held the precepts, they held the Ark of the Covenant, they had the priests, they had everything that we believe represented God at that moment and the Gentiles were outsiders. But he's been teaching them for a while, hey, I've brought you in, the Lord has brought you into the family. Now he's telling them, don't forget where you came from. Don't get so big-headed that you forget that you were once outsiders, all right? So that's the first context. Joel's gonna tell you about the other one. So he's writing to the Gentiles, but he's also uh, uh, speaking to some things that were particular to the Jewish temple. So a really significant line here, he talks about this dividing wall of hostility. Um, one thing I want to point out is that this dividing wall of hostility that he describes as Jesus having taken down, having destroyed, um, when Paul writes this, he is imagining an actual wall uh, that he had seen with his own eyes. As a matter of fact, this wall shows up prominently in the story at the end of the book of Acts um, in, in his mission. But he is imagining something very particular. So let me describe that to you. 
in the Jewish temple, which was located in Jerusalem at the time of Paul writing this letter, uh, the temple was constructed with several spaces for worship. So there was what was called the temple, the, the, sorry, the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile and you believed in the God of Israel, you wanted to worship the God of Israel, you could come into that court. Past that court was something called the court of women. So if you were a woman, you could come that far into the temple. And then there was essentially the court of the Jews, which meant Jewish men in particular. Um, if you were a Jewish male, a circumcised Jewish male, circumcision was the outward sign of the covenant for Jewish men, um, then you could come into that court and then pass that uh, were the places in the temple that were most holy, um, where the priests performed their duties. Um, now, one thing I should point out is that the Jewish temple at the time was not just the center of religious life for the Jews. It was also the center of economic life, political life for the Jews as well. And I should also point out that Moses had not prescribed all of these divisions in Jewish worship. Um, some of this was made up over years of worshiping, and it was built on assumptions that the Jewish relig religious leaders had made over time. And it's like laws have been added to laws, practices have been added to the things that Moses said. This still happens in church life, right? And so these walls had been built between groups of people. And these walls, these divisions, not only spoke to religious divisions, but also political, economic divisions between people. And notice that it was Jewish men in particular who had most access to God which in this case equaled also most access to political power, most access to economic resources. Um, so this is segregation in Paul's day, you know? And Paul makes this really bold claim that in Christ, this dividing wall of hostility has come down, that Jesus has created peace between all of these groups of people. When Kiara and I were talking about this passage earlier this week, she pointed out, and I thought it was such a good point, that the reason in Paul's theology this is true is because the biggest wall in the temple, which was prescribed by Moses, was not a wall, it was a curtain, right? A veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else going on in the temple, the place where God's presence manifested from everything else in the temple. You can read about this in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And at Jesus' death, the scriptural testimony is that that wall, which is the real wall between God and people, that that curtain was ripped in half. So in Paul's mind, it only makes sense that if God was willing to eliminate that curtain, then all of these other walls are just kind of made up, right? All of these other walls that have been built between people are, are just kind of a human invention. And why are we keeping these walls up if God eliminated the wall between himself and people, right? Now, to me, a really fascinating thing about this, if you think about it, is that Paul is saying that this wall has been destroyed, but it's actually still standing in Jerusalem. Um, and so I find incredible parallels to some of the things that we've been talking about the last few weeks, because what Paul is basically calling these early believers to is he's saying, number one, Paul is acknowledging that there are religious, political, and economic divisions between groups of people in the day in which they live, and that these divisions are falling along the lines of gender and class and race. Um, but he is challenging these believers to live as if these walls don't exist. Just think about that for a second. 
He's asking them in, as a family on mission to transcend the existence of that wall in the temple and to live in a different way, to live in a way that is actually a protest to the existence of that wall that's been left there by people in power, all right? Um, so to me, that speaks really powerfully to where we're at today. And I want to notice Paul acknowledges the existence of this wall. Um, I think that's what God calls us to as a Christian community is to acknowledge that these walls exist, but then to live in such a way as if they don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, to transcend them in, in our love for each other. So, uh, Corey is going to be asking us some questions. Can we put that text number up on the screen? I think it's there. Um, and by the way, there are no, no way we're going to get to all these questions. Um, we realize we've talked about a lot. Two weeks ago, we were talking about the image of God. Last week, talking about tribalism. This week, we're talking about this dividing wall of hostility. Um, but Corey's going to be throwing out some questions to us in just a minute. But I'm going to start us off with the first question that oh, Kiara and I... Oh, I forgot a step. Take us there okay, yeah, before sure. we get into this. Um, in addition to like talking about this topic, we wanted to, I guess, model in a sense, but I say model lightly because, again, we have really no idea what we're doing, um, just moderately. So um, we wanted to model what, is it, what it's like to have hard conversations. Like we realize as missionaries together, God is continually calling us into places where we have relationships with people who are very different from us. People who may look like us, but have different cultural backgrounds or different ethnic heritage. People who look different from us, but are similar to us in different ways. People who believe differently than we do. People who vote differently than we do. People who like different pizza than we do. Um, you guys have a lot of pizza. All right, here in this state. Regardless of your pizza choices, um, we realize that you will continue to have discussions with people who have different choices than you do. And so we wanted to model not only looking at the scriptures, but what is it like to have conversations with people like this? Because the other option is to avoid all conversations with people, and then you'll be isolated and not be reconciled, which is kind of the opposite of what we hope happens. So that's another intention that we have here. And so before we have the discussion, I thought it would be good for us to have a discussion about our discussion. Mm -hmm. um, as you and I have had cross-cultural relationships and conversations, I think we probably would agree, but I'd love for you to speak to this too. I think um, probably the best way to approach conversations in areas that you don't really know all the details of what's happening is one, I think to keep an ear towards the spirit there's always a sense in which we should be listening for what the Lord is saying here. And I think that has to be first, because as you see Jesus interact with different people in different contexts, he's always listening for what the Father is saying. He says, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. So when we're in conversations with anybody, I think there's always a need to keep an ear towards the Spirit. And I think the other thing that I've used, and you have too, in um, my relationships with other people is I, approach, I try to approach these conversations with humility, curiosity, and vulnerability. I think those are the key ways that I've tried to deal with things that I don't really know. So I'll have a question for you yes. about your discussion techniques. What are some helpful ways that you navigate vulnerability and curiosity in hard conversations? Yeah, one thing, and actually Kiara asked me this question um, 
earlier in our discussions preparing for this, but I was thinking about vulnerability and appropriate levels of vulnerability mm. in hard conversations. So I think, I was thinking about this this week, I think I want to approach conversations with curiosity, humility, vulnerability, and an increasing amount of vulnerability. Like I think the trajectory of health in our souls is more and more vulnerability yeah. as individuals and as a community of people. And yet, I think it's okay to test the waters of vulnerability in the places where we have relationships. So you asked me earlier this week, on a scale from one to 10, how vulnerable do you think you'll be in this conversation? And I, I'm terrible at those like number things. Um, but I can say this, not 100% vulnerable. Um, I'll give like a, an example why. I think most people in this church, we're a pretty politically diverse congregation. Um, my guess is that it's about half and half, you know, leaning. Um, and I think most of this church knows that I conceal how I actually vote. Um, and, and it's not because the ramifications of the gospel aren't political, because they are. Um, but I think it's a couple of things. I think number one, and these are things like I want to model to all of you, I don't think I trust, I, I love everybody here, but I don't think I trust everybody's capacity to not view me differently because of how I vote. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of people I would trust that in, but not everybody. And, and because of the role I, I play here at the church, I conceal that. And some people really, really try. Like they, like they ask me directly multiple times or they conceal, uh, or they try to draw it out of me. Like, oh, I did so and so. Oh, I saw such and such on CNN or Fox. Did you get this thing? Yeah, did you get? yeah. <laughs> that's right. Some people try to drop hints. Um, but the circle really is very small. You know what I mean? That I would openly talk to that about. And, and I, I want to throw that out there because I, do, I don't think being vulnerable means that there aren't limits to our vulnerability so that we can feel comfortable and safe. And sometimes um, the loving thing to do is to conceal some things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that actually is loving, you know, in a, in a diverse family. But on the other hand, sometimes that's fear. And God's calling us to take a risk. I love what you said about hearing the Spirit. Because sometimes there's risk to vulnerability. We just need to take it. And I, 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 just to qualify that, I think like none of that means that we aren't involved politically or that we aren't involved in these discussions. I think we actually model that here. Like, we're going to get involved in the issues. Like, we're a community of activists. Yeah. But I think creating space for people to debate those things to, without hearing Pastor Joel give his opinion and act like it's from the Bible when it might just be my idea, you know what I mean, of yeah. how, to, how to fix it. So, yeah. I think that gives, well, I think it gives space to both voices. If someone feels differently than you feel, they can still see themselves as fully Christian, fully in line with God and his word, um, and fully in relationship with you. Like I think by acknowledging our own vulnerabilities and not forcing other people to go past their vulnerabilities, but also not feeling like we have to go past our vulnerabilities, like whatever walls or lines we draw, it gives other people permission to do that same kind of thing, you know? And so I, I appreciate that about the culture of our church that we kind of, we try to do that. What about you? How do I navigate carry? Okay, the question was, what are some helpful, I'm glad I wrote it down, it's a lot of words. What are some helpful ways I navigate vulnerability and curiosity 
in conversations. Hmm. I think the first thing I have to do is like choose curiosity. Mm. I think my first, my first default way, that's redundant, first default. My <laughs> default way of interacting with people is to assume that I already know what you're gonna say and mm. I already know where you stand so I should already know how I should respond. Like I'm listening to you but I'm listening so that yeah. I can respond the way that yeah. I feel like is necessary to respond. And that happens to me automatically. Like, Moment one, hi Kiara, I'm supposed to say hi back. Hello, I should ask you how you're doing, how are you? And then I should listen for your response. That's usually how I default. But in conversations when I care about the other person or when there's something here that I feel like we need to talk through, that's good for me, that's good for you, that's good for the body, then I have to actively choose to be curious, to suspend my own assumptions, to suspend my own desire to presume things about yeah. you and this situation and to choose to be curious about you. Yeah. And I have to continue, continually choose to be curious about you because if I choose curiosity, like let's say you say hi to me and then I say hi back, I chose curiosity at that time, and then you say, how are you doing? You confirmed what I thought was gonna happen. Mm -hmm. So I could go back to presuming that I know everything about you, but I have right. to continue to choose curiosity if I wanna get somewhere. And that's what I really appreciate about other people talking to me. Like, I'd love for you not to assume you know everything that I'm gonna say. You don't know me like that, you know? <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to give that to other people as much as I can. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I navigate vulnerability very similarly to you. I think about what's most helpful for this other person that I'm talking to, what's most helpful for the other people that I represent. Like I just recently got married, so I realized that like my business is also Devonte's business. <laughs> so I can put my business out in the street, but that affects him too. Yeah. You know, yeah. and his, his business affects me. So I'm not just considering my own needs, but also the needs of the person that I'm talking to and the needs of the people that I represent. Right. It's so interesting on the vulnerability thing because sometimes being vulnerable in these discussions does challenge or provoke something in someone, and that is what's most loving for them, mm. you know? Yeah. Uh, but sometimes someone isn't ready or we're trusting Jesus to do something in their discipleship or... And I think it's really important to have this conversation because I think there's something... There's something, at least in justice-oriented circles, there is something that you have to prove your fervor um, on these issues by just being completely vulnerable on Facebook, on social media, <laughs> on you and I mean, and I'm not sure it's like always emotionally healthy for everyone. Yeah. Like we have to have these conversations in the context of community, you know, and at the same time be bold and be willing to provoke things with the truth. I like yeah. it. Can I ask one more question? Yeah, go ahead. How do you navigate the fear of offense mm -hmm. in conversations with people that may be different from you or you might not know what's going on. How do you navigate not wanting to offend that yeah. other person? Well, in our church, people don't get offended. so Because <laughs> we're so perfect. So I love I've us. never had to face it. Um, so. Those are jokes. That's not true. <laughs> For our online audience, that's not true. Um, yeah, boy, the way love governs these things, right? Because... Um, there have been things I've said in sermons or in conversations around these issues that, are, that I know are going to offend. Um, and I think there is a place for love to call us to those things and to say it, you know? 
Um, and I have to say, I do not have a personality that that comes naturally to, like it's, it's in my gifting to push against the status quo. I can't, kind of can't help that in whatever environment I step into. But, but it's not in my personality to like engage, like like offense, you know what I mean, or like conflict. Um, you know, there's definitely an internal like emotional journey for me there. But then on the other hand, I think if we're thinking about love, we're thinking about people's discipleship, we're thinking about bringing them toward Christ. And you said at the beginning, but boy, following the Spirit's leading in this, it's like ultimately Jesus is Lord of this person's discipleship, and I'm just serving that. So to the degree that Jesus calls me to say something hard or to keep my mouth shut, right, there really does have to be an ear to the Spirit, you know, to, to hear what he's saying. So, yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Good question. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I think for me, and then we'll probably move on to something else. Um, I think I love what you said. Like we, I, I will probably offend you at some point, <laughs> and you will probably offend me at some point. And if that can just be okay in our relationship, and that doesn't have to disqualify us from being friends, then that's just okay. You know, like if I can just allow that to be a standard, like I will be offended by you and I will choose to still be your friend. I'll still come to your house for the barbecue (laughs) if you feed me. If I can just choose that initially, (laughs) then I think that that goes a long way. When I was in premarital counseling, my pastor, Nikki Morris, said, Kiara, you need to choose to believe the best about Devante. Mm. Just initially choose to believe the best about him. He will offend you. Mm-hmm. He will eat the last <laughs> of whatever you had in the refrigerator. He will. He will. <laughs> choose to believe the best about him. Choose to believe that he didn't maliciously eat the last of what you have. Choose to believe that they didn't maliciously come to ask you about your cultural heritage, to ask you about your relationships with other people, to choose to believe that the person that you're talking to's intent towards you is not malicious. Mm -hmm. And even if they are malicious, you still shouldn't start from that place. I still have to choose to not start from the place of believing that you are malicious towards me. Because that creates skepticism, which is like the opposite of discernment. Like discernment of the spirits is a gift that the Lord gives you. And if someone is malicious, he can let you know. But suspicion is like the demonic opposite of that gift. Mm -hmm. So if I come to you with the perspective that you are malicious towards me, I'm not using the gifts of the spirit. I'm using these other tools. And they bring this other kingdom. I'm going to get real deep. Real fat. Let me. Okay. So... Um, I just choose to believe the best about you, and I can. T- I just keep choosing that throughout the conversation. That's so good. That's so good. So I'm gonna uh, throw out this first question from Ephesians um, chapter two. So Paul says, "Live like this wall doesn't exist anymore." And the last week we were talking about tribalism. Um, one thing we have to acknowledge about tribalism. Um, if you're not quite sure all that I'm talking about, listen to last week's sermon because I'm not gonna have time to give the whole like overview. But one thing we have to acknowledge about tribalism is that there's these different tribes of people in modern society and ancient society, and they do not all have equal amounts of power. Um, some tribes, the, the, the example in, the, um, in Ephesians here is perfect that Paul gives. Some tribes, Jewish men, get more access to economic, political, religious power. Some tribes, if you're a Gentile, um, 
you have less. So there's tribes, but they do not all have the same starting place. Um, society has given gifts to some tribes, and some tribes have been given less. And that's true today, too. Uh, whatever tribe you find yourself in, it's not even that you personally chose it, but society has treated some tribes better than others. There's no question. Now, Paul says, okay, this wall has come down, so let's just imagine this. The dividing wall of hostility is down. On one side of that wall are, um, are Gentiles, you know, uh, who have had less power, less access to political power, economic power, religious power. On the other side of that wall are tribes that have had increasingly more power. So now these two groups are looking at each other, and Paul is saying, in Christ, you've become one. Act like this isn't here anymore. But we don't have the same starting place, right? We've come from very different places. And that means that in a diverse community, a family on mission, our journeys of discipleship are not going to look the same because we're not all coming from the same place. Jesus did something different in our tribes and then brought us to this, to this family. Um, it says in James, as a matter of fact, that for the person in high position, what the gospel actually does is lower them. And for the person who's poor and, and lacking in power, the gospel actually raises them up. So those journeys of discipleship are going to look differently. So here's the first question I want to throw out. Um, for the person who has more power or less power, what are the particular issues that are going to be present in their discipleship? You know, what contributions might they have to give? But what are some of the hard things, too, you know? Um, like, what are some of the pitfalls that could happen? So someone... You know, both these people met Christ, but one person met Christ in a tribe that had a lot of power. One person met Christ in a tribe that had less power. I think the first thing I thought about was like a distorted view of Jesus and like what's holy and what's good. Like I think um, I read a book about this and they say if you it was about personalities, but essentially a lot of your personality traits or your upbringing um, tend to create your image of what you think God looks like. And most tribes feel like God looks most like them. Not just in image, but also sure. in image, but in things that he likes and things that he prefers, you know? <laughs> right. There was this hilarious YouTube video that I watched once that was like, Jesus is a quiet God. And it was the worship leaders just singing soft songs. And they were like, he loves our silence. And then there were other people that were like, Jesus, he is a loud and free God. And, you know, right. neither one. They both were connected to the tribes that the people subscribe to. Right. But the truth is that he's probably neither. Right. And both. Right. Yeah. which is crazy. Like he's not as much you as you think. And yet you were made in his image. So those parts of you yeah. are also him, you know? Yeah, and right. so I think for both sides, like for the Gentile believers, even for us, I think we can experience that. You can get to this place where you feel like God has preferred the Gentiles mm -hmm. over the Jews. Like, well, you guys missed it. He loves us. Like, you know, but no, he chose them first. Mm -hmm. And his heart is for reconciliation for them as well. Just as the Jews in this passage right. were like, you guys don't have the original law. You guys were not his chosen people. You, you know, just that kind of stiff arming, you right. know. And so I think the first challenge for each people in relationship to God is to, like, see him rightly. 
Right. And is to, is to dig in his voice and his scriptures and allow that to let them see him rightly and to start to see the image of God and the other person and let that form their really perspective of him. Yes. Um, one thing I think about is the role or the obstacle of fear in discipleship mm. and how I think especially as we're discipling people, a lot of times we're discipling them through their fears, you know, um, so that they can sure. access everything that Jesus has for them. And uh, there's different sets of fears here, you know, I think for the people in high position. Mm. So like one of my mentors told me that like in diversity conversations, uh, where, and just speaking from the tribe I came from, where, you know, white people who have historically had power will typically begin to struggle the most in these conversations is when we start talking about not just inclusion, but sharing power. You know, so this happens in churches. Um, it's one thing to say anybody's invited. It's another thing to say we're actually going to let other cultures decide what we are, you know, cool. in leadership, in everything, you know. That's a sharing of power, and that feels far more uncomfortable for the person who has had power, right. you know. <laughs> like, that feels scary to give this up. So I think about those Jewish men standing there, they kind of had their own thing going, their own exclusive thing with mm -hmm. its own exclusive benefits. To open that up now can feel like the, the floor is coming out from under you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you're used to that, if you're used to standing on that. But then I think about fear in the group of folks who had less power. Um, I think we all get comfortable where we're at, you know, yeah. in some degree. Um, and it's like, wow, like, are these people going to accept us? Are they going to trust? This wall is down, but are they really going to act that way? There's a whole other set of fears that come up, I think, in, you know, if that's where you're starting from in the temple, you know, and this mm -hmm. wall comes down. Like, what are my responsibilities now? What's my agency like? Like, what can I do? What can I accomplish? Yeah. Um, how do I trust God in all of those things, you know, so... That reminds me of like counterculturalism. Mm -hmm. There's a dominant culture in any context for any subject. There's always a dominant culture um, that's pervasive. Like here, as far as language is concerned, English is the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. There might be people here who speak other languages, but English is the dominant culture here. So when there's a dominant culture, there's always countercultures or subcultures created to have some sense of camaraderie from the other people who don't really fit in the counterculture. Right. And that, like you were saying, um, kind of gives people a sense of belonging. And so the people who had the dominant culture, the Lord is saying to them, these are your brothers and sisters, invite them in. Mm -hmm. But to the people who have counterculture, he's saying, these are your idols, lay them down. <laughs> and also, these are your brothers and sisters. Because if you've built a culture of being opposite of someone else, Mm -hmm. And now the Lord says, be unified with that other person. You now have to begin to define yourself in the ways that the Lord is defining you, which is not counter to these other people. It's deeper than that. It's much right. deeper than that. And so, like, both groups are having to do work. Like, I, if you invite me to your family, I also have to want to come over to your family, you know? Yeah. And it takes the Spirit of God to let us know where we are. And that, because in some moments we are the dominant culture, and in other moments we are the ones with lesser power. And in both situations, we have to hear the Spirit of God and what it looks like to come right. be together. It reminds me of the person, like sometimes I hear 
person define their identity as opposite of their parent. Yeah. Like, my dad was an alcoholic. What I am is not an alcoholic. But that's an impoverished identity. Yes. You know, it's like you're more than just not an alcoholic. You're, yeah. Jesus is calling you something. Yeah. And hearing that, and, and I think, too, what happens then is, you know, if there's someone that was in a, um, you know, an ethnic or, um, you know, socioeconomic tribe that had less power, Jesus wants to empower that ethnic identity. Yes. He wants to empower that, that socioeconomic experience in that person. He's not asking them to leave it behind. Okay. He wants to empower it. But he wants to call it something that's more than just not that. Yes. You know? So, yeah. He says that to the, to the Gentiles, just to bring it back to the scripture. Paul is saying um, there are those who call themselves the circumcision and those who call themselves uncircumcised. Like, they had defined <laughs> each other by right. separateness. Mm -hmm. And he highlights circumcision had been done by human hands. Right. That wasn't God. Yeah. God didn't come down and circumcise you. Right. But also, don't forget that you were far off. Yeah. The ones that call themselves right. a circumcision, he did choose them. Right. So don't forget that you are both. You are both the outcast and the chosen. Don't, yes. don't get too Woo. egotistical. That's so deep. That you don't see yeah. that you need him and mm. they need you and you need them. Yes. It's a triangle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amen. It's air drawing. All right. <laughs> okay. We're going to go a little bit over. We're not quite, yeah. Just, you can leave if you want. Okay. We will still be your friend. We'll choose to not be we'll offended by be you. Offended. You can conceal you leaving somehow. <laughs> Put you your finger to. up. It don't matter. <laughs> okay. Give us a question, Corey. All right. Um, can you hear me? Is this mic on down here? Okay. Hello? Yes. Okay. Um, sociologists show that people naturally gravitate towards people similar to them in race, uh, socioeconomic status, sexual identification, um, age, things like that. So why is it important to go against this human tendency and pursue diversity in places of worship and ministry? And practically, like, how do we start that? Do you want to start? Or you want me to start? It, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I got to write down my thoughts before I forget them. Okay. Um, yeah, I think there's a tension I love that question, and I think there's a tension in it um, because, remember, we said last week in John's vision and revelation that tribal, cultural, language identity is making it into heaven. Yes. So whatever Jesus is doing in all this, he's not erasing those parts of our identity. They're actually going to pass into heaven. I think I'm going to be a white man in heaven. Amen. Um, and so... So he's not getting rid of all of that. And I think we know that, right? Because we don't imagine our gender disappearing when we go to heaven, right? It's like who we, who we are is going to go into heaven. Um, and so this is why, by the way, I didn't say this last week, but it's why, like, here at the Gospel Tab, like, we stay away from language of, like, oh, I don't see color or I'm colorblind or whatever. Look, Jesus sees it, you know? Like, it's John saw it in heaven and celebrated these things. So we're not... I, I guess what I'm saying is Jesus doesn't obliterate the tribes. He redeems them and then calls them into a relationship with each other. And so I hear attention in that question that I think is good to acknowledge that, number one, we are drawn to people who are like us, and that's not a bad thing mm -hmm. um, in and of itself. It's good to have a tribe of people, a place where you can fully be yourself, you know? 
Um, I think about this, if you're, if you're part of a cultural or ethnic minority in our church, I think, or our network, I think about this because um, I, I can't speak to it personally, but I imagine that it's good or healthy to have the spaces where you don't have to explain yourself, where everyone understands you, where you can just be yourself, you know? I think that's healthy, and it's good to have that. The problem is when tribes start to exclude each other or um, want to have nothing to do with each other. And that's why even in the spaces that we've created in the network, we've got to have some spaces where we're all together. And it's like, look, there's spaces where we hang out with people who are kind of like us, but then there's spaces where we intentionally pull against that because we think that that's what heaven is going to look like. Yeah. I think also if you chose to believe that Jesus is the way, and if the way left what was like him to go to what was not, which was you, and you chose to follow that way, then that's why you do it, because you chose to follow Jesus, and that's what he's doing. That's right. Like, he was perfectly in unity. He wasn't lonely, and so he created people. Mm -hmm. He was in perfect unity with the Father. That's right. He came to be with us in the flesh. Like, that was the first way that he came to be near unholy as he's holy. That's not like him. Mm -hmm. And then... In the earth, he went to be with all different kind of tribes. He's a Jewish man, but he's eating with the tax collectors mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. prostitutes and women who just crying on the floor, <laughs> tears and hair and stuff, <laughs> women with blood issues. He was just with all the dead little girls. It was a lot of women. He was just with all of these all kind the of people. Yeah, yeah, and that's what he did. And, man, he might be crazy, but I already chose to say yes to him. Mm-hmm. So I guess I just go, I'm going to be crazy with him? I don't know. We, mm -hmm. And that's it. And it's hard. But thank God that he also did that. And if he's the way, then he'll provide the way to help me do that, too. That's right. That's right. Yeah, because Jesus is going to the tribes and yeah. we're following him, especially, you know, we define ourselves here and in the network as a family on mission. That really increases the likelihood that we're going to be called to a tribe that's not our own, right? Mm -hmm. And that God's <laughs> going to call us to recognize where Jesus is already at work in that place. It's good. Yeah. Okay, Getzes, hit us with another one. Let's give a hand for Corey and Mary. I just love them. <laughs> okay, so um, um, it seems that much of the racial reconciliation messaging coming from Christian circles uh, starts with a per personal opinion or an agenda, and then Jesus kind of gets attached or like added on to mm. that. Um, so, and the person said, uh, the current narrative seem when that happens, uh, to be dividing much more than uniting. So how do we respond lovingly when it feels like the agenda leads the narrative rather than Jesus? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's a question. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Can you, maybe you shouldn't ask that whole question again. Can you just ask the last part again? Yeah, yeah. How do we respond lovingly when we feel like the agenda is leading the narrative rather than the gospel? Mm -hmm. Can I start? Mm -hmm. I, had a, I have a story that came to my mind, so I'll just share it really quickly. Um, I grew up in this church, but back then, this church was pretty much 
I'm, I'm, you guys know, I bless our history. I bless where God has brought us from. But the church pretty much represented one tribe back then. And that's not the case anymore. Um, but what that meant was, in my discipleship, I never really had been, like we were talking politics. I never really had been around people who voted differently than me um, and still really loved Jesus as much as I did. I just hadn't been around people like that. Um, and I remember my first summer in ministry in college, I was at a community development organization on the north side of Pittsburgh. And our staff was really diverse in every way possible, like every way possible. And, but it was a staff that like really loved Jesus. And that's actually was the most disorienting thing for me, to be honest. Like if they were everything I had vilified them to be, you know, for having different views than me or whatever, it actually would have been easier, you know. But instead, they like love Jesus, they're reading the same Bible. Um, and, and notice, I'm saying that Jesus was a unifier and that we all believe the same thing about Jesus, his claims about himself, all of that. Um, but man, we disagreed on a lot of other things. And it was so disorienting for me just because I'd never been around that. And the reason I bring that up is I think that's what caused me to realize that I had a narrative about these things and that I had attached Jesus to that narrative. And I think before I can accurately assess how you might have done that, um, I have to think about, because and here's how I noticed it, my emotions would get so strong in these conversations and it took me a while to realize why am I getting so upset? And it's because I'm passionate about Jesus and I had attached these things to him. So in all of these conversations, I felt like I'm defending him. Um, and that's why I was so intense. And it took me a while to realize that not all of this was Jesus. So I guess just to say, a starting point before I deal with that with you is kind of saying like, man, I've done this too. You know, how have I attached my opinions mm -hmm. to Jesus in a way that he's not claiming ownership of those opinions? You know, so... I, then I think what Jesus does when we do that, like when we sit to when we sit down and we acknowledge where we have idols, where we have places where Jesus is not, but we think he is, then Jesus comes in with loving correction and then grace because he still uses you. Like so many times I have been just not the best person and he's still been like, I see value in you. And I want to use you in that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I am messy. Mm -hmm. And he's like, so what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and man, receiving that kind of grace that as like he's healing my brokenness, he's healing these places where I've had idols as I acknowledge in them. He's bringing them up so I don't stay enslaved to these idols. But then he's healing them and he's giving me his grace and his empowerment that allows you to give grace to the other people. Right. Because I was thinking, people, he wrote the Bible through messy people. Right. Who had agendas, who had cultural backgrounds, who had bends towards one way or another. Right. Paul had feelings about marriage that other people might not have had. He mm -hmm. had specific bends towards different things. And yet... Mm -hmm. The Lord wrote the Bible through them. Mm 
And so and he's writing the Bible through me and he's writing the Bible mm-hmm. through you and he's writing the Bible through the question mm-hmm. asker and through whoever's, all of us. And as we receive his grace, if we're able to receive his grace, then we're able to listen past those flaws in that person and hear what Jesus might be saying. Mm-hmm. It's the hardest thing in the world for me to have somebody say something right about me who I don't really like or <laughs> who I'm offended with, you know? And it's just like, I mean, yeah, but I don't want you to tell me that. Right. I'd rather hear from somebody who I respect or somebody who right. cares. But who is really respectable? Mm-hmm. Some people are, but the <laughs> Bible says like none were holy. Mm-hmm. No one kept the standard. Mm-hmm. And if we hold other people to the standard of perfectionism in Christianity, mm-hmm. we secretly leave ourselves in bondage to that same kind of perf- perfection. Mm-hmm. And we can't receive grace and we can't give grace. And Jesus works in grace right. and, in mo- and in, in weakness. So we don't see him. Yeah. And then, you know, things go south from there. Yeah, it's so good. It also makes me think about, like, you know, we did this series on, on the scriptures recently, how... There are things that the scriptures clearly speak to that are immovable and cannot change. You know, so for instance, Paul, what Paul says here, these words are inspired by the word of God in Ephesians. The dividing wall of hostility has come down. That's true. Yep. It's just inspired by the spirit, testimony, and word of God. But it's interesting. And a lot of our debates in our culture surrounding race and class, I think part of the issue is admitting that there's a lot that the Bible does not speak to. The Bible is not some instruction manual on, you know, American politics in 2021, you know? And so I think there has to be a generous amount of humility in these discussions. Honestly, I think Christians should debate each other on some of these things from the place of what we believe to be true in the Word of God. Like, it's okay for us to disagree. But gosh, that, that, there should be humility in that, you know? And to the narrative question, I do think, we've been saying it this, this whole time, there are voices of justice in our culture today that I do think are contrary to the word of God. Mm-hmm. And where it's contrary to the word of God, none of us should be okay with that. But there's a lot that the word of God doesn't speak to. Um, and, you know, some of the specific issues of our day, I think it's good, even healthy, for us to end up on different sides of that trying to figure out what we know from the scriptures, how do we engage what we don't know from the scriptures, you know, but to have humility in that because we're all figuring it out, you know. Okay, one more question, and then we're going to be done. Are y'all all right? You all okay? Okay. okay. What so. do I do with the past hurt I've experienced from another people group? You guys are amazing. Oh, yeah, read it again. Okay. What do I do with the past hurt I've experienced from another people group? Did you guys hear it that time? Did you guys hear it? What do I do with the hurt I've experienced from another people group? I could speak to this one. Um, I feel... Okay, I've been hurt by other people groups. Has anyone not been hurt by other people groups? <laughs> okay, good, good. Just I didn't know if I was alone completely in my experience. Um, I think I've had to acknowledge the ways that I've been hurt. I think it's not 
it's not healthy for me to just pretend like that didn't hurt my feelings. So I, that's not realistic, and I don't think the Lord can do, he can do whatever he wants. But he hasn't done that with me. He hasn't, like, healed me in the things that I wanted to ignore. Right. You know, like, there, has to, there had to be some kind of acknowledgement. So I had to acknowledge the ways that I've been hurt by other people groups. And I had, I personally had to walk through and am walking through the process of forgiveness with those people groups. Mm-hmm. And you might have a people group in your head, but there are cultures and subcultures in this. Mm-hmm. Like in my personal testimony, I was never, I was never the popular kid. Oh man, that, that missed me. I don't know what other people's high school experiences were. Middle school, I don't think I hit a stride until like college, but middle school, high school, elementary school, oh my God, it's terrible, horrible. Wouldn't choose that again. And that was because of just some of the subdivisions. And it's crazy because in some ways I'm similar to these people groups. We may have the same economic status. We may look the same. We may attend the same school. But then there are other ways where I'm different from that people group, and those are also people group hurts. And I think it's good to talk about these sub-narratives sub because we've been probably been hurt by people who look differently, but we've probably been more hurt by people who look similarly wow. to, yeah. we, to the way that we look. And so in any of those situations, like you, ha- you have to let the Lord in. Mm-hmm. And that for me, that doesn't mean ignoring all the pain and it doesn't mean jumping to some false thing where it's like, I forgive you, everything is okay. It means going through that process. It's, for me, as an exercise, it's also meant praying blessings over that group. Mm-hmm. And that has been hard. Because mm-hmm. if you've been experiencing some deep wounds, or if you've had some moments where you've really been hurt, you don't want to bless those people. You want to get revenge against those people. Mm-hmm. How could you hurt me like this? Oh, no, I hope your car break down. You know, because <laughs> that's, that's the ickiness of our nature. Right. But so that my heart doesn't turn hard and so that I don't give a foothold to the enemy in my own life. So I don't choose offense. I will pray blessings over you until my heart is in alignment with what the scripture right. is saying. Right. God will heal me, but I will not step out of the alignment of the Lord for my life right. because of your hurt towards me. Right. I ain't hurt myself. You hurt me. And yeah. you're not going to also let me step out, right. you know, because that's even worse for me. So right. in several situations, I've just prayed blessing over these people until my heart softened. And my relationship with some of them have changed. Yeah. Not all of them, but some, some of them. Yeah. I think about, as you were saying that, I think about, you know, sometimes what we've preached here at the tab. I think Brooke preached the last sermon on um, forgiveness here. And we try to do one or two of those sermons a year because we're a real family on mission. I was joking about the offense thing at the beginning. Actually, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of offense. Um, and, uh, and so this is why once or twice a year we preach a sermon on forgiveness you know, at the, at the tab. Um, because it gets real when you're out there in the trenches and working beside each other. We step on each other's toes. But we'll make these distinctions between forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust, you know? And so forgiveness is my responsibility uh, before God, and it's to release you from the debt. No matter what you've done, no matter if you acknowledge it, no matter if you've apologized, 
uh, my role is to release you from the debt you owe me and trust that God is going to deal with this, you know, and that's my role. Reconciliation can only happen when there's proximate acknowledgement between the two parties of what has been done wrong, you know? Um, and so, you know, you see this especially in situations surrounding abuse. If someone continues to abuse and they cannot acknowledge that what they're doing is wrong or harmful, uh, you should step out of that relationship, you know? Because uh, it's unreconcilable. You can't have, recon you can forgive them, but you cannot reconcile you know, as long as that's going on. Now, where this affects conversations surrounding racial justice and all this, is I think this is our primary issue in the United States, is that groups of people, tribes, particularly surrounding the issue of race, have never reached proximate acknowledgement of what was done wrong in our history. You know, so we still have large segments of the population that don't acknowledge really the depth of the pain that happened in slavery and in Jim Crow America and these things. And, and by the way, it's because leadership was never given to do that. I think South Africa has been a really good model for how a nation can reach reconciliation by going on the record with its national sins. Um, we've never done that, you know, in the U.S. I mean, it's in our history books, but not in the fish. We never had a leader lead us through that, you know? Yeah. Like, Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela did in South Africa. And so I think that's some of why there's this wound that keeps, there's a wound of, yeah. you know, people wanting acknowledgement for the pain, like this is real, this is happening, do you believe us? And there's still folks, and unfortunately statistics show that the more Christian a group is, the more likely it is that they'll deny the existence of that pain, which is so sad. Um, but it's why, there, it's why, I can just speak for the church, there isn't widespread reconciliation in our churches. Um, if I can just speak for my tribe for a second. Um, particularly in too many white churches and white leaders, there is not willingness to acknowledge the pain of our brothers and sisters you know, who have experienced something differently. Um, hopefully some of that is you know, changing as more and more you know, conversations happen. But I think that's why there's not rec reconciliation. Trust is the hardest one. The scripture actually teaches that trust is conditional. Uh, the, the scripture warns against giving our trust, you know, away. Like, if you give your trust just to anybody, it actually speaks to wounds in you. Um, trust should only be given to people who have repeatable, observable behavior that is trustworthy. Um, those are, that's who I trust in my life, but I think that happens with groups of people, too. We have to live with each other in, in proximate relationship long enough that we, we can begin to really trust each other's intentions and actions towards each other. And part of that trust even means being able to forgive each other when we do something wrong, you know? So, can I say something? Say something else, and then we got we to get to another service. Oh, tell them sing more. <laughs> sing more. Sing more. <laughs> um, some of you guys know my degrees are in sociology, anthropology, and marriage and family therapy. So I really like people. Mm -hmm. So all my degrees are in people. And while I was in school, I was taking sociology of race. And I had to learn about the sociology of race specifically in our country. There were other classes for other countries, but I live in this one, so I took this one. And that class gave language to the, the experience of people groups that I never thought about living in the South. And if you guys will just like be with me for a second. In the South, 
um, you have like lots of different uh, minority ethnicities. You have like Spanish people who have distinctions. You have black people who have distinctions, Nigerian, Kenyan, Ghanaian, all these different things. If you ask a white person in the South, what is your ethnicity? My experience has been like, well, my grandma was from Tennessee <laughs> and my mom was from like New York. So I don't know, I just think I'm a Southerner. Like I haven't had anybody talk about their ethnic heritage mm -hmm. as a white person in the South. Not my experience here. A lot of you guys know where you came from, right. you our, know? It's our immigrant Yeah, history. it's really, really cool. I had never experienced that before. Like there's a little Italian club down the street. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I knew Italians before this. <laughs> I think I did. I don't think I knew that I knew because I don't, think, I don't know if they knew that they knew. Right. They were just Southern, yeah. you know? And I, oh, if you watch this and you're from the South, you have a different experience, please forgive me. This has been my experience, you know? Um, but in that sociology of race class, I learned about the suffering of various white people groups. Like uh, what it was like for Italian immigrants not being predominantly Anglo-Saxon coming into this country. Or what it was like for Polish immigrants. Or what it was like for um, Croatian, Croatian immigrants. Oh, you don't know anything about that, Joel. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, just these various like ethnicities. And in history, there hasn't been a, any acknowledgement of anybody's struggle against the, the dominant group. And it's just progressively gotten worse with just a covering of whatever. At least you're white. At least you're American. At least, you know, like mm -hmm. all, and so progressively we've just gotten worse and worse as a country. At acknowledging. At, at acknowledging the struggle of different people groups. And so now, like, you've, like I've seen people so disassociate from that, that they forget that you, like, we, nobody was from here. Unless you, like, Native American, mm -hmm. nobody is from here. We are all, like, immigrants in this country. Mm -hmm. And, man, it, I think there's something special. Like, he's telling these Gentiles, do not forget where you came from. Mm -hmm. I think there's something special in, like, acknowledging or even seeking out, like, what was the story of the people that I came from? Yeah. And for some groups, there might be limits to what you can pursue. Part of that class, I had to um, take records of slave censuses, and they used to say um, black, or no, they used to say Negro 21 female. And that was the whole record right. of like thousands of people that I had to record and add to Excel mm -hmm. so we could have a record of it. No mm -hmm. names or any of that. So, so for some people groups, there's no way to go back and right. figure it out. But if you have that opportunity, to go back and see where you came from, then you are in the position of humility that Paul tells the Gentiles to be in, recognizing that you are foreigners, recognizing that you have experienced the same outcasting mm -hmm. by the same country. Mm -hmm. And that brings unity, not unity and suffering, but in unity and suffering, but also unity in desiring that there will be one to come to unify us. Yeah. There'll be one to come to heal our collective pain. Mm -hmm. and to unify us together, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know why I want to acknowledge that, but mm -hmm. it just, it just need, I feel like it needs to be said, so. That's great. Awesome. Who's closing the service, Brooke? Oh, awesome. You. We want to acknowledge your time. Thank you for staying later.